We're going to begin with a call to worship as we do normally during our, our Sunday morning gatherings. Psalm 34, we're going to read the entire psalm. Psalm 34 and our call to worship. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may do good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. But when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. For many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. But the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and the promise, even of that psalm, that all those who take refuge in you will not be condemned. And that though there are many afflictions and trials, even now that we face new challenges and hurdles in our lives because of this pandemic, and even before the difficulties of, of health issues, of family or marital issues often put the pressure on us that is too much for us to bear. But God, when we cry out to you, your promise is that you hear us and that you deliver us. When you are our refuge, we find rest. So Lord, we pray this morning as we study from your word that our hearts will be stirred in affection, that our lives would walk in faithfulness and obedience to you, and that in all things you would be glorified. Pray this now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, in light of everything that's going on, I went back and forth this week of whether we should continue in our series in 1 Corinthians or whether we should take yet another break and study maybe something more topical and timely. But as I prayed about that, I, I soon realized that God's Word is always timely to us. And in his providence, he allowed us to lay out this path in 1 Corinthians that works well with the way that we're thinking and the things that we're going through. And so one of the helpful things that I can do as your pastor and as preaching to you 
is to model how we can look at Scripture and apply that to our own lives. Now, we don't want to just rip out Scripture and throw that onto the headlines and determine what we think is best, but we want to understand what God's Word has to say, not only to His original audience, for this case, the Corinthians, but even to us today, even in the midst of this pandemic. Because although this may have been news to anybody reading in Paul's day, and it may be a surprise to us this morning, none of this has ever been a surprise to God. So his words are faithful and stand true. And so what I'm, what I'm determining to do is continue through 1 Corinthians, the study that we began a few weeks ago, and to work our way through the path that God has laid out before us in his word, and ask ourselves how this text applies directly to the issues that we're facing, most evidently that which we're facing in this quarantine phase of the virus. And so as we pray, we ask God what it means uh, for us to live in light of his word. We're thinking specifically about our our own challenges, specifically about our neighbors, and specifically about uh, how we can serve and love one another as the church and as foundation. But as with anything, there are, there are true hardened believers in the Lord who are trusting God now in this moment and leaning on his word. And then there are those who are using his word either for their own gain or misusing his word to offer platitudes and false assurances. And friends, I want you to be sure that his word does offer comfort. His word does offer joy and is a refuge for those who seek him in it. But we cannot go to his word and use it to prop up our own justifications, to prop up our own sense of psychological well-being. That we need to understand that God's word teaches us not only that he will he bless and prosper us at times, but he may bring and visit hardship upon us. And so God's word is important. And Christianity is not a religion of nice platitudes. It's not meant to just simply inspire you to live your best life, nor is the gospel supposed to be a pick-me-up for your self-confidence when you're feeling low or not so great about yourself. See, the Bible doesn't describe the Christian faith as the solution to all of your problems. That might be news to you. The Bible doesn't describe the Christian faith, the gospel, as a solution to all of your problems. Like an Instagram filter that adds color or a sense of perspective or dimension to your life as you'd like. Nor is the Christian faith designed to be a temporary comfort in times of distress only, like a chicken soup for the soul or a spiritual Xanax. This is, this is cheap Christianity. That is a cheap gospel. And that is not what the Bible describes our faith as Christians really is. See, the good news of the gospel, that is the the message of Christianity, is that it is a life-altering transformation of grace that, that offers to us God's free and unconditional love in Christ to sinners like us. Through the death and the resurrection of his Son, it is a transformative offering of God's grace. It's not, a, it's not a pithy saying or a positive message. It is the truth that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came, took on flesh, suffered sin, bore the wrath and the guilt we deserved so that we could be free 
from the condemnation that sin brings, to live righteously and blamelessly and uprightly before God. And his word directs us in that path. Our lives would be a glorious testimony to the grace of God. See, this is not an insignificant thing. It's not a little thing. It's not a quaint thing. The gospel is a powerful thing. Yet many of us attempt to grab the the handles of the gospel, grab onto it and grasp it poorly. We don't truly grasp how powerfully transformative the gospel can be and must be for your life. We usually pack up the gospel in nice little boxes in our lives. A quote on a picture or hanging on our wall. Something contained to the morning during our Bible reading time or on Sundays when we gather. But the gospel is meant to be transformative to all of life. Well, today the way of the cross is too often mixed with the way of the world. And many of us who do not know the gospel well will be hard-pressed to distinguish one from the other. And if we can't tell the difference between the way of the gospel and the way of the world, how will anyone else? Well, where does this all get us? Ask yourself, when's the last time that you remember the gospel working so powerfully in your life to free you from temptation or fear, to enable you to choose love over anger or grace over retribution? Is the gospel a truly powerful and effective thing that transforms your life, the whole you inside and out? Or is it something that you only grasp onto when you're in trouble? See, friends, we can rejoice that God hears our cries when we're in distress. And like the psalmist reminds us, we can take refuge in him when the waters are surrounding us. And yet if we only turn to the Lord in times of distress and chaos, in times of confusion, and not steadfastly endure to the end, following him, and faith and faithfulness, that we have not truly understood the transformative power and effect of the gospel. That the gospel can transform all of us and every part of us. I think Paul in Corinthians here sees the dysfunction of the church. And he sees in it a gospel that has become mixed with human wisdom and lofty, eloquent speech that although is many in words, really say nothing. Well, consider what Paul says here to them in chapter one, verse 18. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Notice what he says there. The word of the cross is folly. That is, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Well, the word of the cross, the message of the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing. What do they consider to be wise? Well, look in verse 17. Paul's gonna hammer this in the next two chapters, but he introduces this idea. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. So he's noticed, he says, the words of eloquent wisdom. 
is something that is contrary to the gospel. Something that is added but unnecessary to the power of the gospel. The gospel alone is sufficient for salvation. The words of wisdom, of lofty speech, of human ingenuity, it's not sufficient. But for those who are perishing, that is, those who are lost, the word of the cross, this gospel that he preaches, is foolishness. But to those who are being saved, that is, those who are being confirmed and built and sustained and brought into the kingdom of God, it is the power of God. That is, it is effectual for salvation. So Paul sees in this church this mixture of the gospel, this pure and saving gospel with the the speech and the wisdom of the world tangled together. And he sees that this is breaking down the witness of the gospel, the glory of Christ that is meant to proclaim. Too many people are turning to wisdom of the world filling their heads with lofty speech and human cunning rather than the word of God and the gospel that ultimately transforms their lives. And so to that end, he seeks here to remind them that it will never be their own wisdom. It's never going to be the wisdom of the world that will cause them to walk faithfully before God. Only God's wisdom that is the wisdom of the cross, this upside-down wisdom that will save them and sustain them. Let's continue reading. It says in verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. For where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand sign and Greek seeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. What does Paul see as the dysfunction in the Corinthian church? They are boasting in all the wrong things. Instead of boasting in the powerful, saving work of the gospel and of the person and work of Jesus Christ, they're boasting in their knowledge. They're boasting in their gifts. They're boasting in their own understanding of human wisdom, of lofty speech and eloquent thought. 
They pride themselves in their arrogance. But Paul effectively reminds them that only boasting, true boasting, is to be in the Lord. So he's reminding them that, that, that they can never be saved by their own wisdom, that they place their hope and their trust and their pride arrogantly in the wrong things, and that only God's wisdom, as seen and demonstrated in the work of the cross, as upside down as it may seem, will ever sa- save them and will ever sustain them. This may bring to, rem- to, mo- to mind Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 8. And this proverb says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will bring healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Here's the idea. Human wisdom, human understanding is limited. And ultimately, when we lean on our own understanding, when we pride ourselves in our own human wisdom, it leads us to self-serving anxiety and fear. It leads us to look at our own situation and wonder, how can I control it? What should I do about this? It leads us to the sort of fear and anxiety that are plaguing many of us today. But the gospel, Paul says, demonstrates God's wisdom that leads us to love and to the service of others. That's the difference. Human wisdom leads us to self-serving anxiety and fear, but the gospel demonstrates God's wisdom that leads us to the love and service of others. We have this contrast here between human wisdom and divine wisdom. So words of wisdom here, as Paul mentions in verse 17, are those insufficient human words of wisdom. And they are focused on the self-serving, self-gratifying, ultimately self-exalting way of life. The Corinthian church has elevated themselves and other leaders above the cross of Christ. They have become factionist and divided among themselves about who's more eloquent in their speech, who's more theologically robust, who's got the right this or that, instead of focusing on the cross and the wisdom of God and the demonstration of Christ's love. They've exalted themselves above the cross, which is in its very essence and nature an exaltation of Christ. And so they put themselves above God in that sense. And he contrasts these words, these these insufficient human words, these words of wisdom with the word of the cross, it says. In verse 18, it says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Well, notice in verse 17, he says that, that they boast themselves in words of eloquent wisdom. That is plural, words. Often many saying few. But here, Paul says it is the word of the cross 
the logos of the cross. It is singular because the logos, the word of the cross, is not simply wisdom, but it is truth. And there is only one truth. See, the whole teaching of the gospel, that which Paul says he preaches, Christ and him crucified, is the singular true source of wisdom in this world from God. There are no other sources of truth. Ultimately, every truth finds its way to the cross of Christ. It followed consistently with the lens of faith. There is one word of the cross, not simply wisdom or positive thinking or helpful and enlightening philosophy, but it's truth, a singular truth. The message of the gospel is a true message. It is the word. And he remarks in verse 20 that this human wisdom is foolishness compared to the wisdom of the cross. And though those who are perishing consider the word of the cross to be foolishness, it is actually their own wisdom that the cross renders foolish. Human wisdom is foolish. But in what way? Well, it's certainly not the case that any and all conventional wisdom is necessarily false or wrong. That's important to remember. All truth is God's truth. So the truth of philosophy and the truth of science and the truth of sociology and of biology and everything else belongs to God. But human wisdom is not sufficient to save. Left to its own devices, human wisdom will deceive the heart and lead it to its destruction. That's why to those who are perishing, what they consider to be foolish is God's real wisdom, which can save them. So in their own wisdom, they've made a judgment about what is right and wrong, what is wise and what is foolish. And their judgment, according to their own wisdom, has led them to destruction. So Paul teaches us that it is foolish it is foolish to put our trust in, wisdom, in the wisdom of our own words. As if, as if the wisdom of our words had any power to truly help us. But perhaps the greatest danger of human wisdom, Paul mentions, is that it may lead the heart to ultimately reject the gospel, to consider the gospel foolishness, to consider the gospel something that, that we need to pay no mind to, that can be discarded or ignored or even refuted and ultimately rejected. Isn't that the height of arrogance and foolishness? This is the true folly. And while Christ here dies and he, he is resurrected and he looks foolish to the rest of the world, to those who are being saved, we see it as clear as day, the power of God unto salvation. But those who do not have eyes to see, who read the world according to their own human wisdom and put their trust in the wisdom of their own words and the way of the world ultimately leads them to reject this gospel to their own condemnation. But for those who are being called, consider verse 2, to those who are being sanctified, to those who are being saved, the word of the cross isn't just a sensible or an intelligible position. It is by its very nature 
efficacious, that is effective. What does Paul call it? He says it is the power of God. The word of the cross, the gospel, the message of Christianity, the good news of Jesus Christ is the power of God. It doesn't contain or describe the power of God. It is the power of God. It's the power of God to save. That's what Paul means to to do. It tells the Corinthians, your, your, your power is not in your words of wisdom. It's not in your lofty and eloquent speech. It's not in your philosophy. It's not in the knowledge that puffs up and conceits. It is in the gospel. This message is a power to save. Well, let's consider then God's wisdom in the cross and our own confidence as Christians. See, we live in an anxious world, right? We're living in an anxious time. And many of us are experiencing anxiety and fear about what the future holds. Perhaps we haven't even yet thought that far ahead in the future and we're thinking now only of today. Will we be infected? Is the virus out there? How do we avoid it? How do we serve? How do we love? What's our day-to-day look like now? But how do we experience Christian confidence in accordance with God's wisdom? What means looking to the power of the cross. It means that there is an actual effectual working of God's power in the gospel that enables us to be truly wise, not foolish. There is an effectual working of God's power in the gospel a real and an accomplishing power in the gospel that enables us to be wise and not foolish. We're able to walk wisely through the world because of the gospel. Where the question then can be asked, how are we wise? You may not feel wise. In fact, you may make certain foolish choices every so often. Or if you're like me, more often than not. How then are we made wise by the gospel? We're made wise by virtue of the wisdom of the cross. See, Paul is not bringing the attention to the Corinthians who need no more help in bringing attention to themselves. He's bringing attention to the wisdom of the cross and the glory of God. This is what he says. It is the wisdom of the cross that saves. It's the power of the word of the cross. And the world thinks that Christ crucified is foolishness, but to those who are being saved, both Jew and Greek, it is the power. Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. He saves us because of it. We are made wise by virtue of the wisdom of the cross, which is folly to other people. But clearly, We see that it is purposed by God. God's wisdom in his ways, in his works, in his words are ultimately and infinitely higher than our own. And so we see in the gospel God's purposes at hand. We see in the gospel God's promises fulfilled. We see in the gospel God's saving and redeeming people. We see wisdom. And we see it in contrary to all else that the world throws at us. It is God's wisdom alone that we see 
that can save us. So being wise, we're told, is living under the wisdom of the cross. Dictated by the sovereign purposes of God to love and to serve others. Not dictated by our own wisdom. That too often runs contrary to God's wisdom. To live wisely means means to live under the wisdom of the cross. In other words, we are wise when our confidence is in God's demonstration of his unending love and faithfulness in the gospel. Not in ourselves. Or even in the very best of human wisdom and philosophy. Our confidence must be in the cross. God's demonstration of his love to the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. If we are to be made wise and to walk wisely and faithfully before God in the world. To ignore this is to walk in foolishness. To ignore this is to walk in our own human wisdom. But where might we we see the prevailing human wisdom today? Again, consider anxiety. This may sound like an odd notion that the anxieties many of us carry around are foolishness and contrary to the gospel, but think for a moment. Anxiety is a reaction of human wisdom that fails to see how God might provide or sustain or work together or purpose something that that works for good. How God might use something like our failing health, a tough situation at home or in our marriage, or even, yes, a global pandemic for good. Anxiety is the reaction of human wisdom that fails to see how God might do these things. Anxiety, fear, worry, they are all caused by a judgment that we make about the circumstances in our lives that lacks sufficient confidence for an outcome that we could rejoice in. When in our own human wisdom and judgment, we survey the landscape of our lives and our situations, and we consider that there is nothing worth rejoicing in, nothing worth hoping in, nothing worth celebrating in, and nothing worth trusting in, and our faith to be placed in, because how could God possibly be using this for good? So instead, I'll try to control it. I'll worry about it. I'll carry anxiety around about it. This is a judgment that is often made by the standard of our own human wisdom, And that, friends, is foolishness. But anxiety is even more dangerous than that. Jesus talked about anxiety a lot. But consider in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, verse 22, Jesus says that the cares of the world choke the word and it proves unfruitful. The cares of the world, the wisdom of the world that says you should be concerned about these things. And you should go after those things. Here's what you should think. Here's how you should act. Here's the things that should take priority. When the cares of the world have precedence, then that anxiety and the concern for those things choke out the promises of the word. And the word proves unfruitful. But he says again to his disciples in Luke 21, verse 34, he says, watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. And listen, 
the cares of this life. And on that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap. When we are so weighed down by the cares and the troubles and the anxieties of this world, we will be caught off guard. We will be ensnared by the enemy. And the day of the Lord's judgment will come and we will be found wanting because we cared more about the things of this world and our own human limited wisdom than about what the cross provides for us. Not only freedom from anxiety, but salvation. So the concerns and the anxieties and the cares of the world are ruinous to our faith. They subtly erode the confidence of God's faithfulness. Look in verse 9, remember, in chapter 1. He says declaratively, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Anxiety and the cares of the world will erode that confidence in God's faithfulness. And these cares, if left unchecked by the word, will not only prove fruitless, but they will prove damning to us. For those who are perishing, consider the preaching of the cross of Christ, and the teaching of the message of Christianity foolish. Let us, friends, not be like those who carry around anxiety made by our limited human wisdom. It does not mean that we won't have anxieties, but that we take these anxieties to the cross, to the Lord in prayer, and we consider what they mean in the light of the gospel. And Paul tells us that God's wisdom and the demonstration of his wisdom in the cross frees us from the strength and the grip anxiety may have in our lives so that we can walk faithfully in joy, not crippled by fear. I want to take just a moment and do a, a, a quick excursus on anxiety from Luke chapter 12. So go to Luke chapter 12 and verse 22. Luke chapter 12, verse 22 through 31. Jesus says to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. And of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add even a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do this as a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spend. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of those. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. What powerful words that, of course, easier said than done. But friends, what Paul is reminding the Corinthians 
is that Jesus, by virtue of his death on the cross, and God in his wisdom in sending his son to be an, an atonement and a propitiation for our sins, makes what he says here possible. That we can rid ourselves of anxiety. We can rid ourselves of the pressure of a human wisdom determining things are not able to be controlled that could not work together for good. That we pride ourselves in our ability to handle everything on our own. We can trust God in all things. We learn from these verses that anxiety flows firstly from an overactive concern for self over others and over the kingdom of God. Anxiety flows from an overactive concern for self and others in the kingdom of God. Well, friends, this doesn't mean that we cannot be anxious about some things. But we need to remember that anxiety ultimately is an orientation failure, that we are taking the situations of the world, judging them by our own human standards, and allowing that to fail us. Even at times, we can be oriented in an idolatrous direction because we are not trusting God in the provision of the things that he has promised us. It's an overactive concern for ourselves, over that of the concern for others, or of the kingdom of God. What does Jesus say that you should focus on rather than being anxious about these things? In verse 31, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Do not be overly concerned about them. This doesn't mean that you shouldn't work. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't provide for your family. It doesn't mean that you should be indifferent or ambivalent toward the things of the world but rather it means that your trust is not in your own wisdom to secure these things at all costs. It means that you trust God to provide them for you. Anxiety will flow when you have an overactive concern for yourself above that of the kingdom. Anxiety also flows from an unrealized view of God's sovereignty. Consider the words that he says here. God takes care of the ravens, the birds, the lilies, He's the one who can add even a minute, an hour, a week, whatever time to anyone's life. We have no control over such thing. We have no such autonomy. We have no such sovereignty. Jesus reminds his disciples that God is sovereign, yes, even over a pandemic sweeping the globe. Our anxiety, though well-intentioned, may be misplaced. Friends, wash your hands take social distancing precautions. But our anxiety that whether God is working for good in the midst of this is foolish. We can trust God in his purposes because he is sovereign, that none of this is outside of his control. And when we forget that God is sovereign, or rather when we don't actually work in God's sovereignty into our lives, then we produce anxiety or fear or worry, or self-autonomy. Anxiety flows from the overactive concern for self, from an unrealized view of God's sovereignty. Ultimately, it flows from mistrust of God's promises. Remember, he says that God will provide these things for you. He knows that you need them. If he cares for the birds and the lilies of the field, he will care for you. Now, this isn't a promise to have everything you'll ever want. It's not a promise of health, wealth, or prosperity. 
is a promise of God's faithfulness to carry you into the end. It's a promise that God is working indeed all things together. And it's ultimately a promise that he will bring to you the power of salvation, not in what you're able to accomplish on your own, and not in the things that worry will produce within you, but only in the cross of Christ and the freedom that it comes in knowing that you've been saved by grace through faith. Do not mistrust God's promises. Do not allow doubt and anxiety to erode your confidence in them, but rather know that God is with you, goes before you, and seeks your good. Well, what ultimately is anxiety's antidote? What is the confidence in the wisdom of God that dispels anxiety and fear? We see it's the marriage of God's sovereignty and his love and his purposes in the cross. It is the power of God to save. Notice what he continues to say. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, though it is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ. That's who God puts forward as the answer and the antidote to our anxiety. Not as Christians, all of our problems disappear, but the solution and the answer to our deepest longings and our greatest fears are answered in Christ. And we now can come to the Lord by virtue of this wisdom of the cross, full of hope and confidence. We can, as the author of Hebrews says, draw near in confidence to the throne of grace and request help in our time of need. Paul puts forward Jesus and his crucifixion as God's answer to anxiety, God's answer to human wisdom, God's answer to our troubling times. What is the wisdom of the gospel? It is Christ. It is the good news that God in Christ dispels our fears with love. He frees us from the burden of having to control everything on our own, to be our own sovereign kings and queens of our own kingdoms. This is the upside down wisdom of the cross. And it teaches us that such a life of faithful, wise living comes from another's death. And such freedom comes from another's burden. Jesus alone is the power to save. So rather than the guilt and anxiety and fear response that only serves ourselves, we are enabled by the gospel to love God, to trust God, and ultimately to love and serve others. When we are freed from anxiety, we are freed from putting our trust in our own human wisdom and instead look and fix our gaze on the wisdom of the cross and the accomplishment of the cross to forgive us of our sins, to free us from the burden of our trespasses and the condemnation of our sins, to walk faithfully before the Lord in confidence that he works all things together for good, in the confidence that he is sovereign and wise and perfect and all-knowing. We are able to love and serve our neighbors more faithfully, not out of fear or panic or anxiety, but out of love. So the antidote to anxiety, friends, is peace. What does Paul say in Romans 5? Since we have therefore been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And what does Paul tell those who go to God and cast their anxieties and cares upon him? That the peace that surpasses all understanding will be the result.
Well, peace comes from confidence, and confidence comes from faith. Indeed, the word confidence comes from the Latin with faith. And so when we turn to God in our confidence, we are turning to God in faith in the gospel, that what Christ has done, his death and his resurrection really was enough, really is sufficient, really is capable, really is efficacious to free us from the torment of sin and anxiety and doubt. We go to God in prayer, faithful prayer. What can God do in his wisdom? Greater than anything the man, man can do in its own. Friends, this is good news to us. The wisdom of the cross, as strange as it may seem, means that Christ can take on flesh, suffer and die, and on the cross absorb the wrath of God, turn away God's wrath from us, taking it on himself in order that we may have life. He burdens himself with the guilt that we should have borne so that we can be free from the burden of condemnation, that we can walk unyoked by sin and slavery. We can have confidence in the gospel because God is wise, omniscient, all-knowing. Friends, walk in confidence of the wisdom of the cross, not in anxiety or fear because of the headlines, but trusting confidently in God's work. We'll take a moment, we'll pray, and then if there's any questions or interactions, we can do that. And I'll give some follow-up announcements. Pray with me. Well, Father, thank you for your wisdom. And although we cannot fully or always understand it, we're thankful for it. I admit even as a pastor that I carry my own anxieties and fears. As a husband or as a father, I am often burdened by these things, forgetful of your promises that my own eyes become unfixed on the wisdom of your word. So Father, I ask and pray that you would remind me of your wisdom, you would teach me and instruct me in your way, and that our cries of mercy now would be heard and answered. Fill us, Lord, with love, not with fear, not with anxiety, but with confidence, and in all things, God, would you glorify ours, uh, uh, yourself in our church. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name.